Hello and welcome to the Luxembourg History Podcast. My name is Tom Tutton and I'm your host for our second series. Today we're going to explore the lives of Luxembourg's first prime ministers, who were instrumental in keeping the country independent and democratic. We'll hear about the man recognized as the first prime minister of Luxembourg, the politician who saved the Grand Duchy after the Luxembourg crisis, and the veteran whose death would see Luxembourg fall into chaos. We hope you'll enjoy the podcast. In 2013, Xavier Bettel was sworn in as the 22nd Prime Minister of Luxembourg. But who were his predecessors? What does the position mean? And who was the first to hold it? Well, Gaspard Théodore Ignace de La Fontaine was born in Luxembourg on the 6th of January 1787. He was only eight years old when French revolutionary troops captured the fortress in 1795, and he grew up at a time when Luxembourg was absorbed into the French Republic. De La Fontaine was educated at the Athenee in Luxembourg before heading to Paris in 1807 and earning a degree in law by 1810. Later that year, he returned to Luxembourg where he was appointed a lawyer in the tax administration. In 1815, he married Josephine Franck, whose father had been a powerful political figure during the Republican years. They would go on to have seven children, including Edmond de La Fontaine, one of the country's greatest poets. So how did Luxembourg first gain a prime minister? Well, after the Congress of Vienna, as we have previously explored, Luxembourg was made a Grand Duchy under King William I of the Netherlands. With Napoleon comprehensively defeated at the Battle of Waterloo, in August 1815 King William called an assembly of notables to advise him on the new Dutch constitution, de la Fontaine, in attendance. In 1816, he was appointed as a member of the Provincial Estates, the successor to the age-old body that advised the king in decision-making. He represented Grevenmacher until 1827 and Luxembourg thereafter. Aside from his legal and political roles, de la Fontaine was keen to promote schooling in Luxembourg. He was part of a group demanding for universal primary education and even acted as a school inspector for a number of years. When the Belgian Revolution erupted in 1830, de la Fontaine remained firm in his support for the Dutch monarchy, playing an important role in keeping Luxembourg out of the new Belgian state. By the 1840s, Théodore de la Fontaine had cemented his reputation as one of Luxembourg's most capable administrators, and when the new king and Grand Duke William II decided to introduce a new charter of estates in Luxembourg in 1841, de la Fontaine proved the ideal man to implement it. From 1841 to 1848, de la Fontaine acted as the last governor of the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, seeing the country through some extremely difficult times in the decade known as the Hungry Forties. Now we covered the events of 1848 in Luxembourg in a previous episode in our first series. And Théodore de la Fontaine was at the heart of the matter. The governor reacted to small uprisings in the Grand Duchy by conceding to protesters' demands, and he presided over the new constituent assembly set up to write the promised new constitution. When the new constitution came into force on the 1st of August 1848, Théodore de la Fontaine thus became President of the Council, in effect the first Prime Minister in the country's history. His new role had far greater responsibilities. He was now faced with a Chamber of Deputies which had the power to issue a vote of no confidence in him. And it wouldn't take long for the deputies to show off their new capabilities. Just four months into his new position, before he'd even had time to implement any new policies, de la Fontaine decided to resign after barely surviving a vote of no confidence. 
It was not to be the end of de la Fontaine's political career, however. From 1849 to 1851, he served on Luxembourg's town council, and he returned to office as president of the state council during the turbulent years following the Putsch of 1856. Théodore de la Fontaine eventually died in February 1871 at the age of 84, but he lives on in history as the first ever prime minister of Luxembourg. Now the next man on our list is Emmanuel Servet, Luxembourg's fifth prime minister and a giant of the 19th century political scene. The late 1860s, as we've previously covered, were a very dangerous time for Luxembourg due to the crisis of 1867, when France and Prussia almost went to war over control of the Grand Duchy, resulting in the Second Treaty of London, which guaranteed the territory's independence and neutrality. By 1868, therefore, Luxembourg was in desperate need of some stability and Emmanuel Servet would be the man to provide him. Lambert Joseph Emmanuel Servet was born in French-occupied Merche in 1811. He excelled as a student at the Athenée of Luxembourg, finishing top of his class for his last two years. Growing up in a Grand Duchy now dominated by the Kingdom of the Netherlands, his focus turned northwards, and he set off to study law in Ghent in 1829. His studies were heavily disrupted by the outbreak of the Belgian Revolution in 1830, forcing him to move to Paris for a couple of years, but he returned to Belgium to complete his doctorate in Liège in 1833. Servet quickly grew to support the Belgian cause, and his attachment to the country was reinforced when he was called to the bar in Arlon in 1833, where he would remain until 1839. But law was not his only interest. In 1836, he co-founded the Écho du Luxembourg, a journal based out of Arlon, which opposed any proposed partition of the Grand Duchy. Unfortunately for him, however, his campaign to keep Luxembourg whole was not successful, and with Arlon now in a different country to his homeland, he made the decision to return to the truncated Grand Duchy in 1840. He was quickly admitted to the bar in Luxembourg, and his life further settled down with his marriage to Justine Boch in 1841, the same year that his political career began to take off. Recognizing his political talent despite his previous pro-Belgian views, The Dutch king William II appointed Servet to the traditional Assembly of Estates in 1841, where he represented Mersch. Over his seven years in the Assembly of Estates, he gained popularity for his liberal views and willingness to challenge the government. Nonetheless, like many contemporary European liberals, he was not a fervent supporter of the revolutions of 1848. Servet's house in Mersch was even defaced by protesters at the height of the upheaval in Luxembourg in March of that year. Despite this personal attack, Servet was impressed by many of the promised reforms, such as the abolition of censorship, the protection of judges from arbitrary removal, and the proposals for a new constituent assembly. Indeed, Servet was immediately elected to that body and played an integral role in the decision to base Luxembourg's new constitution on Belgium's. His importance was further illustrated by his nomination to serve in the new Frankfurt Parliament set up in 1848 to discuss the issue of German unification. Servais and his colleagues were determined to maintain Luxembourg's sovereignty within any future German state, making them unpopular with some of the more progressive liberals in Frankfurt. In fact, by the 1850s, Servais had become known as somewhat of a reactionary, finding the constitution of 1848 too liberal for his taste. He became Director General of Finances under Luxembourg's third Prime Minister Charles Mathias Simon in 1853, and remained in his post during the so-called coup d'état of 1856. Signaling his tacit support for the move. 
After his resignation in 1857, he spent a decade in an advisory role as part of the new Council of State, and his continued prominence in Luxembourgish politics was once again demonstrated when he was appointed as plenipotentiary to the negotiations that resulted in the Second Treaty of London in 1867. And with the fall of the Baron de Tornacourt's government in late 1867, Survey would finally rise to the top of Luxembourg's political scene. Taking power in December 1867, Emmanuel Survey was charged with implementing the provisions of the Treaty of London. First among them was the dismantling of the Fortress of Luxembourg, an enormous project that would cost almost 2 million francs and last until 1883. Survey also oversaw the introduction of the new Constitution of 1868, which re-established the principle of ministerial responsibility, guaranteed fundamental freedoms of the press and of association, and once again granted the reconstituted Chamber of Deputies the power to vote on the yearly budget. The late 1860s and early 1870s also marked the beginning of Luxembourg's industrialization, and Survey played an important role in encouraging the construction of railways in the Grand Duchy. Meanwhile, he also oversaw the rapid development of Luxembourg's iron and steel industries, while an 1873 law allowed for the creation of Luxembourg's National Bank. In the religious sphere, Survey was in power during tense negotiations over the creation of a diocese in the country, with Nicolas Adams named the first Bishop of Luxembourg. Most importantly, during the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, Survey managed to keep Luxembourg independent despite significant pressure from Bismarck by calling on the signatories of the 1867 Treaty of London to respect the agreement. Exhausted by his labours, Survey resigned in late 1874 after seven years in power, but this was not the end of his political career. He remained in the State Council until 1887 and acted as Mayor of Luxembourg from 1875 until his death in 1890. Emmanuel Survey in many ways oversaw the beginning of Luxembourg's transformation into the country it remains today, and as such, he deserves to be remembered as a true giant of Luxembourg's history. The last politician we'll be looking at today is Paul Aitchen, the Grand Duchy's eighth and longest-serving Prime Minister. For 27 years around the turn of the 20th century, Aitchen dominated the Luxembourgish political scene at a time of dramatic change. To put that into context, for Xavier Bettel to take Aitchen's place as the longest-serving Prime Minister of Luxembourg, he would have to remain in office until 2041. He's got a while to go. So Paul Aitchen was born in Diekirch in September 1841, and suffered an early tragedy when his mother died before he turned five. Aitchen's father, Charles Gérard, was a notable figure in Luxembourg politics, having served as Director General for Justice under Luxembourg's third Prime Minister, Charles Mathias Simon. Charles Gérard Aitchen had played a notorious role in the coup d'état of 1856, and the family name was thus well known in political circles in the country. Like his predecessors de La Fontaine and Servais, Aitchen attended the Athénée and studied law in Paris and Bonn. Returning to Luxembourg, he was admitted to the bar in November 1865, aged just 24. And Aitchen's political ambitions became apparent very early on in his professional career. In the elections of 1866, he was elected in Wiltz, but was unable to take his seat as he was not yet 25 years old, as required by the constitution. Undeterred, he ran once more in the subsequent by-election, having attained the necessary age, and won again. He soon established himself as a brilliant figure in the Chamber of Deputies, 
participating in important debates on the railways, education, religion and many other matters. From 1875, Aitian was also the charge d'affaires to Germany, building strong relationships with key members of the German Empire and honing his own diplomatic skills. He was also a part of the government from 1876, acting as Director General of Justice, the same role that his father had played 20 years previously. Under Prime Minister Baron Felix de Blochhausen, Aitian played a central part in reforming the penal code, basing the new legislation on the Belgian model. He also helped to pass the Kirpach Law of 1881, which made primary schooling between the ages of 6 to 12 obligatory. A spectacular banking crash in 1881 threatened to bring the government down, but Aitian was less involved in this debacle. He remained Director General of Justice after de Blockhausen's 1885 downfall related to insider trading, but when the subsequent Prime Minister Eduard Tilgus resigned on health grounds in 1888, Aitian was ready to lead. But almost as soon as he took power in 1888, Paul Aitian was confronted with a serious dynastic problem, which we looked at in our first series. The King Grand Duke William III had only one child, a daughter called Wilhelmina. Luxembourg, for some quaint historical reason relating back to the old Holy Roman Empire and the Nassau Family Pact of 1783, was still governed through Salic law, which meant that women could not inherit the throne. William's successor as Grand Duke would thus be the next available male heir, and incredibly, his closest male relative was his 17th cousin once removed, Adolf of Nassau. Adolf had been the last sovereign Duke of Nassau until that duchy was abolished in 1866, and he proved quite willing to rack up another title. With William III in serious ill health, it was at Paul Asian's insistence that Adolf twice assumed the regency of the Grand Duchy before William's death in November 1890. And after Adolf's succession to the throne, he was quite happy to leave the day-to-day running of his territory to Paul Asian. Luxembourg's political and dynastic independence was now secure, but over Asian's time as prime minister, the country became more and more reliant on Germany for its economic growth. German immigration surged in the last decades of the 19th century, reaching 8.4% of the total population in 1910, and Germans were at the helm of key positions in Luxembourg's railway, customs and iron and steel industries. Luxembourg also remained within the German customs union, the Zollverein. Using Bismarck's policies as a model, the Asian government introduced the first set of welfare legislation in Luxembourg. Workers would be protected by health insurance from 1901, accident insurance from 1902, and provisions for old age from 1911. Meanwhile, a new body was created to oversee conditions in mines in 1902, while a 1906 law aimed to provide social housing for workers previously living in squalid conditions. Debates over schooling continued to dominate the domestic political scene in the 1890s, with Asian's government undertaking a complete reorganisation of the educational system. By 1905, however, Asian was preparing to deal with another dynastic issue. Grand Duke Adolf's son William IV succeeded his father in 1905, and while he had six children, all six were girls. The exact same problem that had occurred in 1890 was before Aitian again, and he decided to resolve the issue by passing a law allowing women to rule. William IV's eldest daughter, Marie Adelaide, was thus declared the heir to the Grand Ducal throne, and she became the country's first Grand Duchess in 1912. And as we'll see next time, during Aitian's last decade in office, political parties began to emerge in the Grand Duchy, but he managed to remain an independent prime minister playing the clerical right off against the liberal socialist left. What he could not prevent, however, was the outbreak of the First World War and the German invasion of 1914. 
In the face of the mighty German army, Aitian ordered Luxembourg's troops to stand down, and while he protested against the violation of the Grand Duchy's neutrality under the Second Treaty of London, he attempted to keep Luxembourg as neutral as possible so as to avoid antagonising its powerful neighbour. Under Aitian's rule, Luxembourg was able to maintain its quasi-independence and sovereignty despite the presence of German troops, although the experience of partial occupation was far from easy. Just a year after the German invasion, in October 1915, Aitian died at the age of 71. He had played an essential role in modernising the Grand Duchy to face the challenges of the 21st century, but his death left a void at the heart of Luxembourg's government that would not be filled for years. And with his time in office spanning 27 years, it's unlikely that anyone will ever deprive Paul Aitian of the title of Luxembourg's longest-serving Prime Minister. That's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Luxembourg History Podcast. This article was researched, adapted, and hosted by Thomas Tutton. Brought to you by RTL Today. <laughs>